Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Best Self Podcast. My name is Chris Chavez. And I'm Stephanie Parati. And we are your hosts for this new podcast uh, that's being launched by Best Self Behavioral Health. The idea to this podcast is basically we want to put out a show weekly where people can listen to other people's experiences, uh, interviews with some some uh, experts in the field, and uh, basically try to remove the stigma behind mental health and what it means to live with, you know, mental illness in this country and this day and age in this world. Um, so the first episode, we're going to get right to it, Stephanie. Our first episode, we sat down with Brittany Palermo. Uh, what is her What is her title? She's the assistant program director uh, at the Child Advocacy Center in Erie County. Excellent. Yeah. And so she basically talked to us about, um, you know, sexual abuse, children's sexual abuse. And it's been a, a big topic recently in the news with that Michael Jackson, you know, documentary that came out. Uh, so she sat down with us. We really got into a really good conversation, touched on a lot of different subjects there. Uh, so we hope you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, here's the first episode of the Best Self Podcast. And I was going through these phases where I was super happy, super okay, super great, and then I crash. It doesn't feel good to be homeless. It doesn't feel good to be poor. It's not like a fun thing, you know, you want to do. There's, there's a new layer of responsibility for parents these days with the internet and technology and social media. It was a hard, hard road. I mean, I would lay at home at night and just worry every single night, like praying I didn't get a phone call, but also praying I did hear from him. Like, I don't understand the need to to put like a, a, a moral judgment on that, right? <laughs> That's just my two cents. <laughs> so I'm going to start with saying April's... Uh, Child Abuse Awareness Month. Child Abuse Prevention Prevention Month. Prevention. Yes, ma'am. Prevention. Yes, ma'am. So I think this is a good time um, to have a difficult conversation. I feel like this is something that people don't like to talk about and they run from. I think because of the Netflix special, because of that, it's Netflix, right? Was it a Netflix special or did they just air it after? HBO. HBO did Leaving Neverland. Oh, okay. HBO. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there one on Netflix? I feel like there's something. on Netflix. Uh, there is a documentary on Netflix, not related to Michael Jackson, but it's a story, I believe, of a girl oh. who was abducted, oh, in, plain abducted in plain sight. I, I did can't watch see that. that. So frustrating mm-hmm. and dumb. I was gonna. I haven't watched it yet, but I thought it had like they made it look like an aliens or something had something to do with that story, like no, UFO abduction. I feel <laughs> like that's a hard example to use because I I just find the parents such an exception in the worst way. Like I, I can't imagine that parents multiple times over would allow an abuser to be around their child after arrests. Dude, you'd be the, surprised sleep what people with do. this man, both parents. It's very, this crazy. is abducted and, in plain sight. Yes. And I, ref, I just, I didn't even watch it. Cause is I it, would be so Is it one of those that just really aggravates you? Like you're yes. screaming at the television. That's what I read. On Barstool. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I haven't seen it yet, but that's what I read. She actually has no idea. I have but no the... idea, but I was frustrated reading the article about it, and I was like, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, but the Michael Jackson thing, like the idea that this this came out on HBO, and it's made headlines, because, and mm-hmm. it's not new. You it know, this happened new, right? years ago. He went to trials for things. Uh, there was always rumors. It was always, you know, tabloid headlines. Um, 
I think what it is is that this time it comes out and these guys are saying, you know, unequivocally, this is how it happened. They're, they're showing what, what they have as evidence, their, their evidence. Um, and it's, and it's kind of put out there. And obviously I think because of who it is, Michael Jackson, it's going to receive that, that spotlight. Um, but like you said, this is actually, it's not just a Michael Jackson thing. It's not just a, a documentary thing. This is a, this is a, a it's an a epidemic. Ref- it's a, a reflection it's, of our community, all of our, our culture overall, like what's going on and how we protect certain people and certain people we demonize. And, and, you know, there was a, what was the, the term? I just learned this term in this, this whole discussion recently is grooming. Yep. Never, mm-hmm. my, never heard of that before. Yeah. I think, um, Brittany, you have the clinical background. Brittany's the assistant program director at the Child Advocacy Center here in Buffalo. And why don't you tell them what a CAC is so people can understand? Yeah, so a Child Advocacy Center is um, a program that brings together a team of multidisciplinary professionals. Um, So CACs typically uh, will include uh, assistant district attorneys, child protection, Um, medical professionals and victim advocates, therapists, and forensic interviewers. And CACs really exist to create a place where a child and a family can come into one building and receive all of the services needed to address a trauma like sexual abuse or physical abuse. So that the child's not put through the thing of come to the office on Monday and describe it. Come back on Wednesday, describe it again to this person. Right. Come back and describe it to these two people at one time. Or you're exactly. sitting in a police station, scared with yeah. other people around you. Yes. And um, your story may change based off mm-hmm. of fear. And so this place is a welcoming, comforting place for families mm-hmm. um, to get the help. And then, but not even that, but the follow-up help as well, you know, kind of linking to. Yes. Yes. So the idea is that it's a child-friendly place that's trauma-informed, creates a sense of safety, and really guides the child and the entire family through the legal process, the treatment process, um, the investigation process, the whole thing. Now, is this a a New York thing or is this national? Do all states have these centers? Um, All states have child advocacy centers. Um, In New York State, uh, I believe all counties have CACs. And they all work the same way. The idea is that with all of these branches Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. government. Okay. Yep. So if you watch any of the documentaries or you you didn't or you've been involved in sexual abuse, I, I feel like this, and if you watch the Oprah special, which is what I appreciated the most, because it was more of the healing mm-hmm. aspect to it. Yes. Was um, that an older special or was it This new? was right after. Oh, okay. Yeah, she recorded a special with James Safechuck and Wade Robson immediately following the release of Leaving Neverland. I was going to say, didn't because I feel like back in the day she did a special as well with Yes, she did. With that, right? Yes, she did. She hosted, I believe, uh, two over 200 men. Yes who identified as victims of childhood sexual abuse. Wow. Mm-hmm. Some of which Huge. were there again in yes. the same audience, which mm-hmm. I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the issue with this documentary um, that people are saying, oh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's one-sided. It's, we're just hearing from the, the children, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been a lot of issues in our culture where people aren't believing either women or they're not believing. Mm-hmm. Um, they think that people are, are, lying or you know we right. do have the the you're always the little s- boy who cried wolf situations which then yeah. 
they're doing it for money. So they don't really look at the problem as a whole. Right. They just look mm-hmm. at the situation. They say, oh, he was a great guy. Yeah. There's no way. He mm-hmm. was investigated. They found nothing. Mm-hmm. And yes. then they just shut out yeah. this as a whole. Well, because think about it. When you when you really start to think about what's involved in child abuse, uh, child sexual abuse, um, it's it's not something you want to look at or talk about no. or, or it's it's like that it's like the dirty secret just sweep it under the mm-hmm. cover like this is something we shouldn't talk about you know mm-hmm. this is this looks bad on society this is a bad reflection of our family of our or your belief system or whatever the case is mm-hmm. so you're always going to have people that have that uncomfortableness and they'll do what they can so they'll take a, a documentary like Finding Neverland and say oh but this one fact was wrong. So he must be lying. Everything else is wrong. He wasn't mm-hmm. abused. Or mm-hmm. these facts they have, uh, look at all of these holes. So it didn't happen. And instead of focusing on what happened and how do we stop like, things like that from happening, they're avoiding what they don't want to deal with and try to pick apart these things because they don't want this person to have that in the limelight. They don't want people to bring this information out. Whether it's to protect Michael or not, it's because of the uncomfortableness of having to deal with that. Is That's how I see it at no, least. No, I agree. And Brittany, when you and I were kind of talking about the show beforehand, um, you made a great point on how sexual abuse back then is very different than now in the way that we're no longer focusing on the stranger danger. And I think right. if you can talk about that, oh, um, that because you could have a parent right now say, well, I, I know where my child is, stranger danger. They know if somebody doesn't know them, they know not to get in a car, but that's, we're not there. I mean, that's important, obviously. Yeah. But when we're talking about child abuse, 90% of abusers are people that we know. So why don't you talk about really sure. the difference? So the real crisis, I think, when you look at an issue like childhood sexual abuse is, and Chris, you mentioned grooming, which I'll talk about, but yeah. really the crisis of it is that it's a confusing issue. So many, in so many cases, what you have is an alleged offender who's a family member of mm-hmm. an identified victim. And so an entire family is suddenly in this crisis of who do we believe? What do we believe? Mm-hmm. Um, referring to, you know, that sort of antiquated idea around stranger danger. I you remember know? that. Yeah, when which we was little huge kids. Like, when we were kids, don't right? Don't talk to anybody. Don't take anything right. from them. If they call you to the car, go the other way. Yes, beware of the white van yeah, with the yeah, with covered no windows. up windows. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, and, and certainly we want children to be aware of their surroundings. But what we know now that maybe we didn't know well enough years prior is that I think it's over 90% of childhood sex abuse is perpetrated by somebody known to the child. Yep. And when you really look at what's known about the grooming process, it's such a refined process. Um, and it's not just the child that's groomed, it's the entire family. Um, do you feel though, like, so back then the, the idea behind stranger danger, do you think that maybe there's still, there's something to it in regards to, again, not wanting to really face that, Hey, it was my brother or it was my uncle or absolutely. it was my, my son. So let's mm-hmm. teach them about strangers so that at least we can get that part of it in and recognize signs. But you know what I mean? Yes. I, I think more and more, <laughs> um, child sexual abuse, uh, much like addiction mm-hmm. is something that's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. We're just now starting to understand the real dynamics that play in into it. Okay. We're just now starting to become knowledgeable about what's really happening. How does this really occur? 
what is the evolution of how somebody is groomed and what does that process look like? What are the actual warning signs? We're just now catching on to that, I think. I see. So why don't you tell us about grooming? Mm -hmm. For those that didn't watch any of these documentaries, you may have no idea what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it has nothing sure. to do with like making sure your hair's straight. <laughs> Or Dogs, you, horses, you know, your teeth, right. You brush your teeth for the morning, you're good. Right. No. So grooming in the context of childhood sexual abuse refers to the process that a perpetrator um, goes through when they are looking to identify a potential victim. Um, and I mentioned a few minutes ago that grooming is a process that doesn't just occur with the child. It, it often occurs with the entire family. Um because perpetrators of childhood sexual abuse are able to thrive on a child that is isolated, um, perhaps is being bullied or doesn't have a lot of friends. And so there's this opportunity for this adult to come in and form uh, what feels to the child like a really trusting relationship, a very loving relationship. Um, often perpetrators will try to identify families where there's maybe not a lot of supervision or that child it would be easy to isolate and get alone. Um, it's not uncommon for perpetrators to try to identify families where there's a single mother, um, one who's maybe overwhelmed working long hours. Um, so part of the, the grooming process is really looking at what are the vulnerabilities of this child and this family. Um, Thinking about maybe a, a little girl or even boy. And I think that's something we have to talk about because I, a part of me always feels that we always think it's more female related. And I think mm. the Catholic church kind of allowed us to see that no, this is boys and the stat, which I don't have on, on hand, um, it's actually higher for men by, I think two, it was like a, a, not by much, but it just showed that boys were actually sexually abused more mm -hmm. than girls under a certain age. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think we always just think men prey on women and we don't think that men prey on men, women prey on men. Um, and I, and I think that men are taught from a young age, especially back then to be tough and to be masculine and to be macho and to not to cry and to hold your feelings in. And also, I mean, your sexuality. So you're yes. a man, uh, if this happens to you and you vocalize it, Mm -hmm. Maybe you're not a man. Maybe mm -hmm. there's yeah. there's something you need to question well, your sexuality. Gay or yeah. people. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of thought behind that. So I just wanted to make sure that people understand that this is not a gender dominated right. thing. This is no. Both. It's a very complex issue. Very, um, I would say very complex because when you were talking about grooming, um, some of the things you're saying about how perpetrators, these are things they look for. So it's almost like, I mean, this is, a, we're, we're talking about somebody who actively, actively right? yeah. preys on children and, yes. and knows what to look for and how to do yes. it. Um, how do you interact with, uh, you know, children who do that to each other and they don't, understand what's happening you know mm -hmm. what i mean or or like say say it's uh um the victim obviously is is, is eight nine years old maybe seven eight nine uh but th the perpetrator is a 13 year old or a 14 mm -hmm. year old that to them in their mind they're not like i'm gonna prey on somebody let me figure out how to do this and get my in like right like how does how is that handled? yeah i feel like there's a lot there's of layers so many different layers yes. to this and maybe you can uh, 
talk about the different layers mm-hmm. from family to friends to coaches to, you know, sure. let's kind of break down yeah. each one. Sure. So when we look at um, developmental norms in young children, mm-hmm. we understand, you know, in the medical community, in the child welfare community, that there's something normative around young kids exploring their bodies and sometimes engage on, engaging in what can look like sexualized play. Right. So for example, it's not unheard of for two five-year-olds to play doctor, right? And so um, that's not necessarily going to be linked with childhood sexual abuse. Do you think it's 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 more the uncomfortableness of an adult knowing experience and sure. all of this? So the connotations feel uncomfortable, but in sure. that mentality, the developmental like part of their mental health, the children. That's not mm-hmm. really doing anything, you know, any kind of damage there. Well, and it's such an important education piece for parents to have a pediatrician you trust, a counselor mm-hmm. you trust, who you can ask these questions. I see. Okay. Um, when we look at uh, the word pedophile, mm-hmm. talk about a term that gets misused oh, yeah. quite a bit, right? So a pedophile um, is really somebody who is uh, sexually attracted to somebody um, who is considered a minor or to minors in general, Mm -hmm. um, the identified pedophile is an adult and, um, they are unable to control those attractions and often their behavior. Mm -hmm. Yes. So often, um, the word pedophile is sort of applied to maybe a 16 year old who's engaged in sexual behavior with a 12 year old that, that can be misuse of the term Mm -hmm. pedophile. So there's a lot of misunderstanding around these concepts and um and i would say michael jackson would be considered a pedophile in the way that he loved these children Mm -hmm. he married them allegedly we have to allegedly right um married them i must i didn't hear yeah i mean he gave Mm -hmm. rings and they did vows and and these are stories that um like these kids probably thought they were being loved and, and yes, but also experiences that they've never had before. So they had nothing to compare it to. So it's like being taught to eat with a fork. Okay. I guess this is what, this is just what we right. do. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's when you are showing a child that type of affection, mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, this is normal. Right. Um, and really when we talk about that grooming process, that's something that generally you're going to see in pedophilia. Um, because it's a pattern of behavior. Um, and so absolutely with grooming, um, you know, once a child has been identified as being vulnerable, somebody that would be easy to isolate, there's a trust building phase. Yeah, so it is, it's phases. So they yes. don't just attack and that's yeah. it. Not Why don't all. you take us through sure. what is that mental? Sure. Um, so after a child is identified as being again, vulnerable, somebody that would be easy to isolate and spend time alone with, there is a trust building phase. Um, And that's really where this vulnerable child is met with a lot of praise, a lot of one-on-one attention that they're not usually not otherwise receiving, um, which is why it's, it feels so good for the child. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not uncommon to see gift giving Um, and not always just to the child, but sometimes to the parent, siblings, that perpetrator is really inserting themselves in the family. So that if anything ever comes up, all those people are like, no way. Right. That person's so it creates great. doubt. Yeah. It creates doubt. Wow. Um, the grooming process is a very um, stealthy 
one really, if you think about, and this is kind of a crude metaphor, but if you think about somebody being a spy, mm-hmm. right? When you're a spy, your job is to sort of infiltrate yeah. um, this environment and blend in. Yeah. You need chameleon, to look like you belong, yeah. right? Make it seem like if if your cover's ever blown, everyone has to doubt. Like, there's yes. no way. Yes. There's no way. Absolutely. Um, and so after that sort of trust building phase, that's often where the physical contact will start to begin. And common examples of this include giving a child a lot of hugs, putting a hand on a knee. And it's sort of a testing phase to see, um, does that child say no? Do they show obvious signs Reaction. of discomfort, yeah. right? Or do they sort of allow it to happen? Well, and I think the point of that grooming is you need to get that child alone. Mm-hmm. So this is not mm-hmm. at a family party out in the backyard with the people around. Like you are building that trust to say, hey, yes. come over or hey, let's. So then you mm-hmm. have that trust. Oh, sure. Of course. Go with, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then that's when the stuff starts to slightly happen because- yeah, you need it, to build that relationship. And I think one of, if not the biggest misconception around childhood sexual abuse is I think often for adults and folks who don't do this work, there's an immediate idea that the process is brutal, it's violent, it's unpleasant. Well, that's what abuse, we think of abuse, right. we think violent. And- that's often not what the experience feels like for that child. They're suddenly receiving attention, praise, gifts, um, and physical affection from an adult that they trust. And so that's really where you get into the crisis around why don't kids disclose? Why don't they tell a parent what's happening to them? Because it doesn't feel necessarily like something that's bad. Think of the confusion that must, I mean, it's gotta be so confusing. So like if a, say there's a parent listening to this and they Mm -hmm. have a child that they do say it's okay to go and and hang out with my, you know, my high school friend I've known my whole life. It's fine. I trust you. That's uncle so-and-so or or aunt Mm so-and-so. What should they be looking at? Like what kind of signs do children start to exhibit where you can see, well, hang, hang on a second. There used to be this, this different light in their eyes when they were around this person and now they're acting different. Like what kind of things do you look for? Like what are signs that a child exhibits that something might be going on? So it, Um, generally what we sort of encourage parents and caregivers to look at is to know your child Mm -hmm. and notice anything that seems out of the ordinary for them. So it could be any kind of sign. Right. So if your kiddo is typically pretty outgoing, energetic, but suddenly they seem lethargic, they're quiet, they're withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Um, that might be a red flag, right? Um, you know, difficulty sleeping, changes in appetite, changes in school performance. Um, it, those day-to-day routines are things that we encourage parents to kind of keep an eye on. And I think it's important that you said that it doesn't feel like abuse to the child because right. what we do is we say, were you abused? And yeah. you're in your head going, well, that felt really good. So no. Did someone hurt did, you? Did yeah. someone hurt you? Right. Um, Did they touch you wrong? Because again, I trust them. So for me, it wasn't wrong. Well, and and such a crucial part of that grooming process is the child, it's instilled in them so deeply, so intensely, no one can find out what we're doing. If somebody finds out what we're doing, I'm going to jail. You're going to jail. Your family will stop loving you. 
Nobody will ever look at oh you the God, same. Horrible. And those messages are drilled, drilled, drilled in. And so there's a huge crisis for a victim around disclosure. And there's some really interesting research out there. Um, so uh, Dr. Ronald Summit in the 1980s talked about child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome. And what was really critical about his research was he suggested that initial disclosures, he said, are often delayed, conflicted, and unconvincing because the disclosure is a crisis for the victim. Mm. And that's the issue with prosecuting that we find so crazy that some of these people are not in jail because what proof do we have if someone doesn't immediately go and get a rape kit or even if there was no mm -hmm. penetration or – right you know, bodily right. fluid, you know, if you can't test for that, mm -hmm. um, what are they going off of? How does one feel safe after disclosing? Right. Mm -hmm. And then the, that's where the advantage is there already for the perpetrator. As you were saying before, they've already built the trust with exactly. all the other people so that exactly. there will be doubt. And now the doubt is like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Also, right. your story's not working here. Why are you, right. you know? Well, and, and frequently, uh, a question we get is, you know, why is it that parents, um, and in many cases, mothers have a difficult time believing their child? Mm -hmm. And that's because the grooming process is done so effectively. It's just, it's not just the child that's groomed, it's the entire family unit. And that yep. grooming process exists to create the doubt, to create the confusion, the second guessing. And, you know, we know that in many cases, after an initial disclosure that, again, is um, delayed, conflicted, unconvincing, it's not uncommon for children to recant because they disclose right. and they see the fallout of their yeah. disclosure. Maybe they've been put in foster care and they're separated from their siblings and now everybody's upset and CPS is involved. Yep. And so as humans and certainly children especially are going to go back to what's familiar even if it's not a good familiar. We say it all the time. I wish things could go back to the old ways. Yes. You know, we, yes. As you're right. As humans, it's just a, a, a need, an instinctual thing of this change is too much for me to deal with right mm -hmm. now. I'd like to go back to the old way. Right. And I think it's important that healing is such a part of this that so many people live with this for years and years and years. And Brittany, why don't you talk about the stunted mental development that comes with this? Because I think people will think, oh, well, it happened years ago and time heals all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, doesn't even bother me. I, yeah, I think of it now ago. and it's whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, so actually, one of the things that really stunned me from the Leaving Neverland documentary was Wade Robson's story because, um, like Chris said, in the 90s, uh, Michael Jackson was put on trial, I, I yeah. believe, two separate times. Oh, yeah. It was all over the news. I right. mean, all the time. And I think what Wade Robson really spoke to was the crisis around he initially was somebody who came to Jackson's defense and said, no, nothing ever happened. I was never touched. No, 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 never happened. And it wasn't until he had his own child, yes. became a father, and started to have sort of these epiphanies around, wait a second. Why want someone touching my child? Right. I can't imagine. Wow, I'm so angry at the idea that somebody could do that to my child. What does that mean about what I went through? Mm -hmm. And so often a person is not able to really make sense of an event or have a proper context for it until adulthood. Yep. 
And that's one of the tricky things. And that's often why we see survivors coming forward years and years later. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty um, is there's almost never legal resolution in those cases. But, you know, even if you are holding this, um, you know, we'll say secret for years, let's say you're, you know, 30, 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Just you don't need to go through a legal criminal process if even just disclosing to a therapist or a friend or a family member that you trust um, is really big. And, and, and um, you know, I, I watched this podcast. I'll have to pull up his name. Um, and he was sexually abused, um, you know, as a nine year old. And he and he didn't disclose until, you know. 35 years old. And he said, I didn't start living until I said something for the first time because mm-hmm. it was that subconscious cloud that just followed him and made him paranoid. And even if he wasn't directly thinking about it, it still felt like embarrassment and humiliation and shame. And um, so there is this stigma around, especially men but women too disclosing this, like yes. your world will not be over mm-hmm. if you disclose no matter what you were told. And I think that's the messaging. I think it's also weird how men and women view disclosing in such a different way. Like you said, men a lot of times don't want to because they don't want to be looked at as weak or whatever the case is. But women, the fear is the not being believed. Yeah. Be- being called a liar, being yeah. called, you know, and women have a huge fear of violence. Like yeah. they said, mm-hmm. I-, I saw a study that said women's number one fear is violence and men's number one fear is, um, rejection being made fun of embarrassment, oh, wow. embarrassment, yeah. mm-hmm. rejection. Yes. Well, and a- another thing that's really starting to evolve in recent years is our understanding and recognition that, um, men or, uh, you know, in many cases, adolescent boys, when they are uh, victims of sexual abuse from an older woman, right? So, you know, hot for teacher, right? Yeah. yeah. Nice about- job, Johnny. Right. But, but it's true Slap because uh, five, a few years yeah. ago, it was the huge story I remember about the high school teacher who yes. fell in love with the, the student. They she just went got to divorced, prison. Actually. They got she got pregnant. Mary Kay Letourneau. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean it was a big deal, and every right. and, and I remember the jokes. I remember the jokes where the high school guys were like, "Oh yeah, of course." Mm-hmm. But like, think about what you're really saying. Like, right. you this is not right. okay. It's yeah. It and, sounds funny, but it's not okay. Yeah. Well, and more and more, you're starting to see in the news uh, cases of female teachers, yeah. female coaches. Um, we're recognizing that it is abuse. It is abuse and it's not cool and it's not funny in the comments when they're like, oh, if that was my son, I'd be – we are promoting abuse. It it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Listen, if if this is a a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old, listen, it's wrong. But we are talking about 28 – 29, 30-year-olds preying on 14-year-olds. This, mm-hmm. this is not a cool yeah. thing and to do. And they're not developed yet. We they, know this. Yes. We already know about the development of the brain. Like, this is all scientific fact. We know about how your brain develops and how old you need to be uh, before these these important things are happening to you biologically. So, like you said, to joke about, like, high-fiving, yeah. mm-hmm. it's, it's realize what you're talking about is you're saying it's okay to damage them psychologically. That's what you're telling us. There's no physical thing that says that they can't walk anymore. There's nothing saying that, you know, they 
fine. Maybe the kid's even not, not, you know, it's going to do something years from now. He's not going to have a normal relationship with a woman if he doesn't address this, you know? Well, and speaking to the recovery piece, um, you know, we know from research, from practice, from the evidence that um, the estimates right now are that 75 to 90 percent of women uh, with a substance use disorder are survivors of sexual abuse. Yeah. Right. And I can't tell you how many times as a as a therapist I would treat somebody who had been hospitalized, had suicide attempts, uh, using substances and you know, you meet with them and they say, well, I've been diagnosed as having bipolar disorder and major depression and schizophrenia. And nobody has ever asked them what happened to you. Right. You know, talk about some of the experiences you had as a child. Um, and so even in uh, the behavioral health world, I think we're probably not always doing justice to thorough trauma screening, thorough trauma assessment, Mm -hmm. and really looking at those pieces. So do you know what the percentage or numbers are on men? Um, not as well. Um, I believe the current estimates are something that one in 10, uh, the current estimates are that one in 10 children mm-hmm. will be sexually abused. Yeah. Um, one in five girls. Um, I know. We among, can look it up. Yeah. I know among, uh, if you look at uh, rates of incarceration among yeah. men, astronomical rates, of um, childhood sexual abuse, childhood trauma in general. Wow. So I I think we don't want this podcast to scare people away like, oh, my child's not going anywhere. But I think it's really important, Brittany, for you to talk about um, informative parenting. Responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, Be responsible. Yeah. Right. So, um, and this is what I'm about to say really applies to parents, caregivers, teachers, and even professionals working in this field. Mm -hmm. We are recognizing more and more that the way you talk to children about these issues, um, even down to the way you ask questions is really critical. Um, so, you know, as a therapist, I'm trained to really try to stay away from closed ended questions where there's a yes or no answer and really move into more. Tell me about that. Open ended questions. Um, so, you know, we really encourage parents to, you know, if if little Joey went to a sleepover at a friend's house, you know, maybe instead of saying, did you have a good time? Um, tell me about your sleepover. Yep. What happened? Right. Right. Um, then what do you listen for? Do you listen for that? We did this. We did this. And then. And, and then we did this. You, you start looking for little things. and um, Again, I think uh, parents... It's, knowing your child. It's absolutely knowing your child. It's also, and this is a great follow-up question for anybody who has relationships with children. Is there anything else you want to tell me? Hmm. Is there anything you want to ask me? You know, just making it very open-ended and creating an atmosphere where it's okay to ask and say difficult things. We know that children often recant disclosures of sexual abuse because of the response they receive at yes. the time mm-hmm. of disclosure, mm-hmm. right? Look what? of what? shock, but, you know, yeah, right? panic. Why didn't you tell me? And so yeah. 
there's a real need to create an environment and a response that's accepting, that's not um, scary for them. Not child. alarming, right? You right. don't want the alarm bells going right. off. You know, so it's, thank you for telling me. What questions do you have? Is there anything else you want to tell me? Um, so you probably want to make sure you have a relationship with your child where they understand any time in life that there's confusion for them. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's something that makes them feel uncomfortable, they should right. feel comfortable talking to you about it, no matter right. what it is. Right. And really sort of encouraging your children that if they ever have an experience with another person that feels confusing, mm-hmm. that it's okay to talk to you about that. It's okay to ask questions. Um, and I know a lot of... Um, parents are doing the good touch, bad touch now. So what are, why don't you tell, um, parents and even teachers and, you know, whoever are guardians of children, you know, what's the best way to teach them at a young age about boundaries and, and sexual abuse. So they're understanding what's Mm -hmm. okay and what's not right. So, uh, the good touch, bad touch is definitely, um, you know, it, it was kind of the, uh, the information we we had for such a long time. Um, really more what we're encouraging parents and caregivers to do is to make sure that their children are educated, you know, at age appropriate levels around the way the body works and, you know, encouraging that um, other people shouldn't be asking to take your clothes off. Um, that, you know, if you're going to take your clothes off, it's because um, you're at the doctor's office or mom or dad have to look at a bruise that you got. Or you're taking a bath. Or you're taking a bath. With mom or dad in the right. house. Right. Um, and it's it's really, again, instilling in your child. If you ever, you know, if you have an interaction with somebody that's confusing or scares you or you're not sure what to make of it, it's okay to talk about and that. And what age should they start having this conversation? Oh, wow. Um, because I know my nephew's three and he knows about privates and not to... Mm-hmm do that. You don't hit people there, you know? Yeah. So I think even around those young, young ages, it's teaching kids the terminology, Mm -hmm. right? Teaching them how to identify their body parts. Um, so, you know, again, there's considerations around a child's development and how much detail you get into. But I think really from those young ages, when your child is becoming verbal, it's teaching Mm -hmm. them the right language. Yeah. Yeah. And for working moms who have to bring their child to daycare, when we talk about taking their clothes off, sometimes accidents happen and they need to get new underwear or they mm-hmm. need to get their pants changed. So it's really, that's okay, but you still have to be aware of the people that are around your child all day and right. and asking. Right. And again, saying to your kiddo, you know, tell me about your day. And I love that ending question. Is there anything else you want to tell me? Is there anything you want to ask me? Just leaving it very open-ended, yep. creating a sense for that child that it's okay at any point, any right. time to bring up anything. Because those first few times they may not because they're still uncomfortable. But sure. knowing that it's always there, that third time might be like, okay, I think right. I'm going to tell mom today. I think I'm going to talk to her. Well, and another crucial piece for parents and caregivers is to instill in your child that there's no secret keeping, mm-hmm. right? That if, it, especially if another grown-up is asking you to keep secrets, that that's a red flag. Yeah. That's the time to come talk to mom or dad. Um, And I think you mentioned something when we were talking before about if somebody tells you to keep a secret or that you're talking about that threatened guilt process. If somebody ever, you know, makes you feel unsafe, Mm -hmm. if somebody ever asks you to keep a secret, it's okay to come tell mom, come tell dad, you're not going to be in trouble. Um, I want to help you with that. Yep. 
And then sleepovers. We, you know, <laughs> we, you know, obviously grew up in the 90s yeah. and that was a big thing. I'm going to my friends. I'm going to camp. Right. I'm going, yeah. you know, wherever. Um, but I think it's okay to have sleepovers. But w- what are some rules with sleepovers that you think is a must Sure. So it it's such a tricky issue because, you know, as a social worker and as a parent, you know, the last thing you want to feel is really hyper vigilant, like yeah. you can't let your kid leave the house. Helicopter mom, right? Right. Um, you want your child to experience the world. At the same time, though, again, I think it's instilling that messaging, you know, that you don't keep secrets from mom or dad. You know, checking in around, you know, how was your sleepover? Who was there? You know, tell me about it. Is there anything you want to ask? So I think it's just really instilling those messages, checking in with your kid and knowing your kid and watching their behavior, looking for those changes. Do you think it's important for them, for parents to meet the parents beforehand? I think so. Sure. Sure. I think it's important to, you know, if I'm going to think about sending my child to a sleepover, where are you going? Where do they live? How do I reach you? Um, you know, what are you going to be doing while you're there? Where are you going to yeah, be sleeping? Right. It's having those details. Um, you know, and it, it's such a tricky thing because we can't prevent every bad thing that's going mm-hmm. to happen. Right. But there's, you know, there's a, a piece around making the effort, being knowledgeable, asking the questions and and doing what you can, doing your due diligence to keep your kiddo safe. Yeah. And I I think um the special attention is important too. So um you know, we talked about hey, Steph's really great at soccer. I think she could, you know, be great in the future. Let's have some one-on-one time. So that does happen um but it can also happen with cruel intentions. So yes. what are, how do we go about <laughs> letting Stephanie go, you know? Right. So if I'm the parent of a teenager, right, and uh, the soccer coach is saying, you know, hey, your kid's really talented. I'd love to do some one-on-one practice with them. Get them on the national team. Great. I'm going to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm yeah. going to be there as there mom. There you go. Right? What time? Where are we doing this? Because there's it's, no such thing as mom can't be there. It's going to stunt their training. Absolutely. You know? No way. It's, you know, it's being involved. It's having the information, asking the question, and not being afraid to ask the questions as a parent. You have every right as a parent to ask the right questions, mm-hmm. to be a little nosy, mm-hmm. right? And certainly with teenagers, you know, and, and the technology and the phones, it's setting the guidelines and really driving home to your child. Your teacher should not be texting you. Right. Right. Your teacher should not be emailing you. Facebook messenger. Your right. Coach should you not should be... not be Facebook friends or on Instagram or whatever with your coaches, with your teachers. That is not okay. Um, so I think it's giving yourself permission to be a little bit nosy, to set those boundaries and know what's going on with your kid. There's ways to give them a little privacy and then there's a time to get involved. So, um, just to speak to what you said there for a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. so there, I grew up when I was younger, I played little league. Sure. Um, my nephew went through little league and golly, he's going to be graduating this year. It's insane. Uh, but he went through that and he did have a coach where it was, um, you know, all the boys were friends with him on Facebook and vice versa. And it was this kind of thing. So do you feel that this might, it, it, it cause you also want to make sure like 
we all went through it. When you're a kid, you're growing up and mom, can I do this? No, but everybody else is, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. And it's, it becomes one of those things where not only is it in the home life, the whole everybody else is, I should be a part of the, the, you know, the norm, but mm-hmm. then they have to deal with it in school. Like, Oh, we were all talking on, on the message and this is what we're doing in practice today. And your kid's like, well, why didn't know that? Oh, sure. you're not friends, you know? Sure. So yeah. like it's it's almost it's it's really hard. It's really hard to kind of judge and figure out how you want to do it, but I feel like what you're saying overall the bottom line to all of this is to always have the right messages instilled with your child. Know them well, mm-hmm. build that relationship and make mm-hmm. sure they understand right. the mess the importance of the messages you're giving them. Well, if Johnny's being left out, so let's say he came t- to me, I'm not I don't have a child, but yeah. I can put myself in those <sighs> shoes. You know, hey, everyone's on the messenger in this little league group. Great. I'll be in the group too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So There's nothing wrong with so, that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. For sure. if my teenager is coming to me saying, you know, mom, like I'm the only one that's not involved in such and such. Okay. Well, tell me about such and such. And why don't you get me the phone numbers for a couple other parents of mm-hmm. kids who are involved in there such and such. There you go. Yeah. Right? Do your homework as a parent. So, you know, it, again, it's it's such tricky territory because you don't you don't want to have a black and white policy around right, everything. Right. You don't want to shelter your kids, but there's room to ask the questions, get the information, yep. have it on your radar. And if know your, your child, child is yes. underage, I, I am not, um, you know, I say this now, but my mom is probably <laughs> laughing. Um, it, we want passwords. I mean, I my aunt does that with my cousins who are young. She has the password to their Instagram. She has the password to their Facebook and she checks in and I'm sorry. And I, I think that's important. And you know what? You can have privacy when you leave my home. When I was young, <laughs> so when I was younger, we didn't have all the social media, yeah. Yeah. but I wasn't allowed to lock my door. My mm-hmm. mom, if my bedroom, if my mom wanted to walk in that room, she Oh yeah. Better can she can. And she went through my things. It was there was no such thing as having private things at my house when I was a young kid because mm-hmm. no, this is my house. I'm going to see what you have in your drawer. I'm going to see what's underneath your folded up clothes on the shelf upstairs, you know, in your closet. So, uh it's it is. It's about being a parent, taking the responsibility of being a parent. So many people have children nowadays and it's they don't think about what it means to actually be a parent and what <laughs> comes with it. But I feel like there's also people who are just like I want to have a kid just to have a kid because it's cute to have the kid. That's part of like it'll go with my purse and my little dog that's in the purse. Like that's what the whole thing is. And I feel like we're losing a lot of people who understand what it means, like what you're saying, to know your child, instill these messages, develop that relationship and and be more responsible do the time to take the homework. Get me the phone numbers to some of those parents. Let me mm-hmm. find out who the coach is. Like we're right. not, it's not just a whatever, you know, you're not just going to go right. do it. And I think as you know, especially to parents of teenagers, I mean, first and foremost, parenting a teenager, the last thing it is, is a popularity contest, yeah. Yeah. right? Oh, my mom used to tell me all yeah. the time, we are not friends. I am not your buddy. Yeah. We are not going to get hair yeah, done together. We are, right. You are not. You are my child. So I think there's room to say to your teenager, listen, I'm willing to work with you on some of this, mm-hmm. but let me tell you, here's what I need to know. Here's what we need to meet halfway on. And these parts are not negotiable. Yeah. And now is so different. I, I mean, I even what with the topic of sex and, and children learning about sex, it is so quick now the way that they can access information and what they're saying on the bus. And I hear, you know, I was getting my hair done and someone was like, yeah, my 10 year old was in a group chat talking about oral sex. And I'm like, at 10, I didn't even know that existed. (laughs) Right. I didn't even 
even know it's that different. was a thing. Nowadays I didn't even know what different. periods were. I didn't know anything at 10. Internet has but made it different. It's made yes. co- our entire culture a different type of society. So you no have question. to be more vigilant with your child because if you just let them sit on the computer for hours, who knows what chat room they're going to yeah. walk into. And especially mm-hmm. like you talked about their confidence, think about how awful it is to not be the girl that the boys like or they don't think is beautiful or they're not liking your pictures on Instagram, you know, and then somebody is telling you you're Mm -hmm. beautiful. Oh my gosh, you could be blah, 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 blah. You're this. And they're like, wow, you know. Well, and particularly for teenagers who are victims of childhood sexual abuse, um, to them, it feels like a relationship, Mm -hmm. right? So... Um, it, it's a really tricky issue because, because at that age, it's, that's, that's, that's almost like a goal at that age. Like it is it's a developmental norm to have the girlfriend, yep. to have the, you know, I can, yep. I'm attractive enough. So I, there's somebody mm-hmm. else that wants me, not just my mom who wants to kiss me. I have a boyfriend. Me. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's, we know, um, that, you know, if you look at the stages of development, that adolescence is all around social functioning. Yeah. That's the mm-hmm. bread and butter in those ages. Um, but again, I think, you know, there's, there's a new layer of responsibility for parents these days Mm -hmm. with the internet and technology and social media. So it's around, you know, doing the work of, you know, I'm sorry, you're 10 years old. So a chat is not going to be what you're doing, but if you want one of those little leapfrog pads, absolutely. If you (laughs) need to look at a screen, great. We'll get you a screen, but you're not, let's decide what kind of screen you're going to look at. We're turning Wi-Fi off. You have no access to internet. Use the iPad all day. There are parameters. Yes. It's not a free for all. And I think that conversation has to start. It can't be midway through when they've become custom to the screens and what their friends are doing. It, it's too late. It's like when you don't give your kid vegetables until yeah. they're whatever. And they're like, whoa, what is this? You yeah. Have to nice start try. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to start it from the beginning and it, it can't be a conversation that goes missed. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick back to, well, one, the stat for men is one in six. Yeah. I believe so, it. um, yep. It's terrible. It happens to everybody. And so the thing that you said about special interests, you, you said something about board games, which I th- I laughed like, Adults, like, I don't like playing board games. What did you say? I'm not... You've not played with the right people, man. <laughs> yeah, board games I mean, can be but fun, But the way man. you said it was, yeah. was made so much sense. So <laughs> when I watched Leaving Neverland, yeah. and I'm furiously taking notes the whole time, one of the really stunning pieces for me was that... Um, you know, and I, and I don't want to judge because I've never been a parent in that situation. But what really stunned me was neither of the mothers of these two alleged victims sort of had the light bulb moment of why does an adult want to hang out with my six year old? Well, because it was Michael Jackson. You know, I think if it was just a regular adult, no, but it would have been different. Why does Michael Jackson want to hang out with a six year old? Why does any adult want yeah. to hang out with yeah. my six year old? Why yeah. do they want to play shoots and but ladders we'll think all day? About that. We'll think about it. Not only did he groom the parents and the family, he groomed the world. Yes, he did. That's what it is. He groomed the world. He grew mm-hmm. up in the world's eyes. That everybody saw little Michael Jackson. Everybody's, mm-hmm. and then we heard about his abuse. We heard about how he grew up. So then it yeah, was right. poor Michael Jackson. We saw the things he went through. He his had hair no child. He did. He had no childhood. Correct. No childhood. His hair catches on fire. He's the he's the boy in the in the in the guy's clothing, right? And now he's got his land is a circus. It's it's a carnival. This is where he lives. Like mm-hmm. so, he groomed the world. So that's why there's no light bulb for the 
of women because those women are like, well, he's a little boy. And yeah, he, I thank God it's my son. I get to hang out here. I get to go on these trips. I get to, you know, it's sad. It really is sad. But again, I think the message to parents and caregivers Mm -hmm. has to be, you know, yeah. Be paying attention to who's taking an interest in your child. Yeah. And Who is cares it a, if it's Michael Jackson? Is it a level of interest that makes sense, that right. seems appropriate, that's not out of proportion, right? So if, you know, if Uncle Joe comes over, you know, once a month and spends half an hour playing shoots and ladders with my kid, okay, that kind of makes sense. I get it. Yeah. Um, but is Uncle Joe coming over three times a week and playing board games for three hours? Like, Right. Shouldn't Uncle Joe have a life? Be doing something else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of taking all of that into consideration, right? Is the attention that my child's receiving from other adults you know, appropriate? Is it something I'm able to supervise? Does it seem out of the ordinary, out of proportion? Um, and I would say also if a parent starts to have those alarm bells, but their first instinct is, ah, oh, no, it can't be. Pay attention to that. Don't just wipe it away and say, oh, no, you know. Yeah, check in with your kid. Tell me about what it's like when you spend time with mm-hmm. Uncle Joe, mm-hmm. right? And um, what about when parents are busy? So, Chris, I remember when you and I were talking and you were like, well, what if, you know, you have a tutor, but then your other kid needs to be picked up. And then, you know, where are you drawing the line of, I don't want my kid to miss out, but I also don't want my kid to be in a situation that I think, is I think it's basically what you say. It's just it's it's kind of understanding the situation, having good judgment, yep. but also you everything we've heard so far when it comes to doing your best to tr- protect your child or to inform your child is about knowing them and and creating the this dialogue and 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 teaching them the right information. Um for and so I would think that if this was the case, it, it it's almost like you should you should kind of know, like, you know, you would think, but. Well, and I think the other thing that I really want to stress to parents is, you know, so I am a parent, I'm a social worker, I work at the CAC, I'm elbow deep in these issues five days a week. Even that doesn't protect me mm-hmm. from falling victim right. to yes. something and like this, is this right? Yeah. So, you know, as parents, we do so much. We we're constantly worried about our kids. We do so much to try to protect them. And at the same time, bad things can still happen. Yeah. So as much as it's about prevention and being aware and trying to keep your child safe, it is equally about your response mm-hmm. should something bad ever happen. That's exactly where I was going to go next. So we've covered, you know, what to try to do to, to get your child where you need to be, how you're a little bit more aware. So it's happened. Yeah. Okay. You find out from your child. What do you, what kind of advice are you giving parents who, first of all, how do they react when they hear it? And then Mm -hmm. second, what do you do? What are your next steps? What is the, what's the next step to take care of this? Right. So we get a lot of those calls every day at the child advocacy center, you know, parents who are panicked, they're emotional, they're angry. And, you know, I just found out this, or my child just told me that, or, you know, my other child just told me, something Mm -hmm. happened with, you know, my oldest child or my youngest child. And so it's never a bad idea to call your pediatrician. Okay. Right. Um, start Googling things and making phone calls. Um, two one one Western New York is a great resource, right? Call your child's school and say, I'm concerned something happened. What do I do? Who Mm -hmm. do I call? What are my next steps? Right. And, and CPS too. And I think you, you had a great point about the fear for the parents that, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, if I call take CPS, the they're yep. going to take my child. That's not 
that's really not um, the thing that we see happening in the large majority of cases. Um, you know, and, and again, if calling child protective services is scary, which of course it would be call your pediatrician, Yeah. right? Pediatricians, nurses, teachers are mandated reporters. They know the right number to call. They know what information to give you. So, you know, in any time we get what we call cold calls to the CAC, somebody who's sort of just calling frantically, um, you know, Tell us a little bit about your situation. What kind of help are you are you looking mm-hmm. for? What questions do you have for us? Um, you know, it, it's it's a scary, scary thing. And in terms of you know how you respond to your child, it's this is easier said than done. Yeah. But it's doing your best to try to remain calm, try to thank them or express appreciation for you know thank you for letting me know, mm-hmm. thank you for telling me. Um, you know, we're going to figure this out together. Um, it's, it's just trying to create a response that doesn't lead that child to want to recant. Yeah. You know, and, and or maybe such a tricky thing. lead them to not want to say something again in the future mm-hmm. should something happen. Right. Right. You know, so it might be, you know what, thank you so much for telling me I'm your mom. The number one thing I want to do is keep you safe. So yeah. tell me more. You know, tell me more about what's been going on. What are you comfortable telling me right Mm now? Um, Yeah, it's it. So I want to lead into the healing part now. So when I was watching Wade and what was the other man's name? James. James just looked like someone who had no uh, therapy or healing at all. He Mm. seemed very young for his age. He seemed... um, very innocent still almost like he was still in that childhood even though he didn't have one it was bizarre it was almost like a contradiction like he lost his childhood but he seemed like he was still his soul was very young um in a way like he just seemed very kiddish like someone stole that from him and he didn't develop into this um functioning adult. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it was about it, but it just, he seemed very stunted. Hmm. Um, so I think if you can talk about how important, um, that healing and that therapy is regardless, if you don't want to get into the legal part of it and prosecuting <laughs> and all that, um, how important is it for someone to, to really get the proper help? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Let's talk to the people who haven't got help that are maybe 40, 50 years old and sure. you're not too old for help. No, therapy doesn't expire. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and the recovery process for a trauma like childhood sexual abuse is such – it's a long-term process. It's going to feel different one day to the next, one week to the next. And I think what James Safechuck and really Wade Robson also spoke – so elegantly about was the conflicting feelings in their recovery process, right? So feeling sad when Michael Jackson died, um, feeling that sense of loss. So it's not, it's so important for survivors to understand that a therapist gets the fact that it's not just anger, just a sense of betrayal. It's not black and white. It's so not, it's so many shades of gray, you know, and that's really what the treatment process is all about is helping a survivor to, 
create their own new narrative about what is the meaning of all of this. You know, what is safety going to look like at this point in your life? What is healing going to look like at this point in your life? What do you need from relationships now? And so a well-trained therapist is not going to dictate for you what healing looks like. They're really there to hear your story, to be a witness to it, guide you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think therapy and, and treatment in general is such an intimidating mm-hmm. um, prospect for people, especially with an issue like childhood sexual abuse. And, you know, really what I would stress is that um, a good therapist is going to understand that it's it's complicated, it's yeah. confusing, it's something that's not going to make sense for a long, long time, and some parts of it may never make sense. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's really what treatment is all about because we know that victims of childhood sexual abuse, when the abuse is occurring, it's so secretive. You don't have anybody. You don't have a soundboard. Mm-hmm. You don't have somebody that you can go to and say, hey, I'm really confused about my relationship with so-and-so. That's really where treatment becomes critical is having somebody that's safe, that you can trust, who's non-judgmental, where you can ask those questions and talk about that confusion um, and have somebody be witness to that. Um, and, you know, with regard to James Safechuck, I, I think, again, what I saw was he just, he really spoke to those issues that yeah. it's confusing. Yes. And it's not one-sided for him. Um, and we know in behavioral health that trauma does halt development, mm-hmm. right? You know, how many of you have ever talked to somebody who chronologically is 50 years old, but you sort of think to yourself, oh my God, it's like talking to a 12 year old. Yes. <laughs> well, um, Anyone trauma, who knows me. No, just <laughs> <laughs> trauma can really create that, right? So if you have a trauma at the age of eight, um, that experience is going to halt your development, right? And, yep. and, and until recovery and when you say development, we're not just talking, you know, physical or this, but there, there's something about w- where you need to be at a certain age, uh, how you think of something, how you see the mm-hmm. world, how you react to something. Um, that's part of this. So yeah. it, it can, it can stunt how you do that. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things I was going to bring up was because you brought up Stephanie, older people who mm-hmm. may have dealt with it and now they're realizing, oh, you know what? It, maybe that's what that was. Right. But I don't feel weird. I kind of grew up my whole life perfectly fine. I would, I would, I would venture to say, put a magnifying glass on your life. How there's got to be something in your life that says, well, I don't respond to this a, a good way. It could have been because of that, or, or substance use. You know, I do this. I, I drink every Friday night. Well, mm-hmm. as far as you don't know, it could have been because of this trauma. So it is important to still try to find somebody to talk to about it. You might not be dealing with it and crying in a corner every night or, mm-hmm. or, you know, have any kind of animosity towards the person, but you should still get it out there because you might be able to figure out something else in your life that that's what it's affecting. Well, in, in the documentary, what both Wade Robson and James Safechuck talked about was in early adulthood, having these experiences of not sleeping well, mm. being emotional, um, feeling really lost, not being sure who they were. And um, I believe as it was Wade Robson talked about this distinct sense of, I don't like who I am and I don't know why. Mm. I don't know why I feel this way. Um, sometimes, and in many cases, that's related to unresolved trauma. And again, a good therapist is not going to be there to determine or decide for you what those experiences mean. Mm -hmm. They're just going to be there to 
listen to you figure that out. Mm -hmm. Guide you. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, to be witness to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important for survivors to have a voice because for so long you were silenced and you couldn't have a voice and you (laughs) felt very internalized and scared. And I think it's, you know, obviously whatever you're comfortable with, but I, I, everybody that I've seen who has been abused, you know, through different podcasts or magazine articles or people who've been on Oprah felt so empowered after. Mm -hmm. Um, and they said, you know, thank God I said something because I was suffering. Um, it, it was just uncomfortable to be around other people that didn't know because Mm -hmm. it just felt, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know the word, but shameful almost, even when people weren't, you know, participating in a relationship with them, even at work, you just felt mm-hmm. um, like the black sheep yeah, for it's some like what, reason. what that guy was saying. He yeah. just didn't feel good yeah. with himself. Yeah. Right. And what I would really put out there to, you know, survivors um, who may or may not have, you know, been in treatment yet or, or, you know, wherever you might be with your own experiences, it's so important to understand that all the parts of the experience that make you feel abnormal and weird and messed up, those are all the parts of it that are actually normal given the situation. Right, right. Are there any groups that people can go to kind of like, you know, we think of AA, but if people want to be surrounded by people. Um, like sexual abuse survivors? Yeah. Is there Are there things that people can do um, to be around other people like themselves to kind of just mingle and... Right. Um, so there probably are some support groups locally. Um, at the CAC, we're actually um, just starting to do some groups. So we're doing a group for kids ages 6 to 10. Oh, great. We're also going to be starting a group later this year for um, parents and caregivers who were non-offenders. Um, How to deal with it. Right. Frequently what we see, and again, it's, it's often mothers who their significant other was the alleged offender. And so the disclosure from the child really puts them in this situation of, oh my goodness, I've lost a source of income. I've lost a source of transportation. I've lost parenting help, right? Um, And love. And love. Love. This person has to move out of my home. Now I'm a single parent. What does this mean? Um, Can they see my other kids? Like it's... It's so yeah. confusing. It's yep. so complicated. So we are going to be starting a group for individuals who find themselves in that situation. Um, so, and there's a you know this this stat right here, and this is just for juveniles. So I, I want to find the one for adults, but it says forty to eighty percent of juvenile sex offenders have themselves been victims of sexual abuse. Yes. So, what is the science behind? people that have been abused that then go abuse? Is it I'm getting my control back? Is it, what is it? Well, I think, I think as a field, we are still nailing down the understanding of that in a very general sense though. Um, you know, human behavior is learned, right? Everything we know to do from brushing and flossing our teeth to paying our taxes these are learned behaviors, yeah. right? So everything we do, we do because it serves a purpose and it's something we've learned. Um, and so often when we work with children that are engaging in some sexually inappropriate behavior, it's not uncommon for them to have been victims themselves. Right. Do you think it goes back to the 
uh, stunted developmental growth that your Often brain is sure. attracted to that age where you were abused, kind of not so much nailed down specific, but you kind of, when you say someone that's 40, but acts like they're 12, is it, I would think the stunt, the, the, the way the stunted thing would affect that is that they, they didn't develop completely how to m- make those decisions based on critical thinking and, and, and decision-making skills. So at eight, you're not, you don't have that developed. So maybe that's something that is affected when you get older. And so you are apt to do some of those things knowing they're wrong. You still kind of go through with it anyway. Well, we do what we know, yeah. right? As humans, we do what we know, we do what's familiar. And so if you're somebody who's been a victim of some kind of sexual abuse and, and there's certain things that you learned sexually as a result of that those experiences it might be something that you repeat now we certainly don't see that in all cases every right. case is so different um, but in general behavior is learned yeah right we know that because i see michael jackson i see him with the rides in neverland and 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 having having pet monkeys and 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 feeling like he to me forever always felt like a child even mm-hmm. as an adult i i always looked at him as a young child the way he talked he was so soft-spoken and just so almost like naive Mm -hmm. um so a part of me is like was he just that was he predatory or was he repeating or he just was attracted to what i think the trouble is those are mutually exclusive no that's the problem it it, it interacts there's nothing that's in anything that we're deciding that's black and white no it just doesn't work that way but for for him it's almost like you like who your age is or how you feel like sometimes it's hard to explain. I'm not making an excuse for him, but it's like he was acting like a child. So of course he liked children because it was kind of like he was stuck in this. Right. And I think, you know, the discussion that I hear a lot of people trying to have that I don't know we can have Mm -hmm. in any kind of informed way is if Michael Jackson did these yeah, things, no way, why yeah. did he do these things? Right. right? And that, talk about a complicated answer yeah. because we know um, we know that there was a, a great deal of trauma going on in his home as a mm-hmm. child. Um, he really did not have a normative childhood development. Um, we know that later in his life he was having some issues with substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And so the question of, you know, if these things happened, was it because he was a predator no and a pedophile or was it because right. of his own childhood trauma? Um, a, we don't know. And B, those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive right. events. Right. Well, I think trying to get to the bottom of it goes back to prevention. You, We don't want to breed more abusers. And I also it, feel like it goes back to like being human. We want to be able to track and figure out patterns. And if we can figure yes. it out, we can, like you said, prevent yes. something if in If you the weren't abused, would you have abused now? You know, yeah. trying to stop it. From the beginning, mm-hmm. um, I think that'll drive you crazy. You yeah, know, as a society, yeah. it'll just drive us crazy trying to get to to a point Especially where, like, if you don't have that mind and you can't understand and you're trying to figure out that person's brain, like so, how like how for, are you there? Like for me, I think the most important thing is the acknowledgement that this is happening and how do we address it and how right. do how do we work with the victims so that we can do our best to guide them to you know the best development that they can have given what they've, they've put up with. Um, 
trying to figure out like Jackson or, or even why this, why that, I feel like that's second or even third, like, you know, yeah. it's just, it's cause you like, like you said, it's not exclusive. So you're always, you might drive yourself crazy thinking for each case. Well, why was it? Cause this, was it cause this, and you're going to get there at some point, but at the beginning of the day, at the, once this is all coming out, we have to worry about this child. We have to worry about this victim right yep. now. And as a social worker, what I see in the last 10 or so years is we're, we're finally realizing that there are aspects of human behavior that we've tried to offer very simple explanations for mm -hmm. that don't have simple explanations. Yeah, so exactly. even just looking at the field of recovery, when you talk about substance abuse, right, for years and years and years, the message was, well, just say no. Right. Well, we know that doesn't work. Right. Right. That's, right. It's yeah. just not that easy. And so I, I think that this area around child welfare, childhood abuse we're starting to realize it's not as simple as stranger yeah. danger. Right. It's not as simple as if something happened to my child, A, I would know, and B, they would tell me. It, these are really complicated issues with a lot of layers. So these things come up and people, um, you know, if you have any questions, you want to reach out to your pediatricians, you want to reach out to law enforcement, you want to reach out to somebody that can help you on a national level. Um, is there, are there national websites or, or numbers that people call that when this happens and mm -hmm. you don't want them flipping out? Like what is, what's the, yeah. So even just Google searching the national children's Alliance, okay. um, child advocacy centers, okay. um, mandated reporting, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you know how it goes with Google searches, you search one thing and you find five sites and right. and you sort of start to get some information. Yeah, you get a feel for what's what's right. accepted and what's just right. kind of like mm -hmm. alarmist mm -hmm. because you don't want to do that either. You don't want to webmd yourself and think that it's the <laughs> end of the world and yeah. and I'm not going to say a word now, right? Right. Um yeah, I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Brittany, we usually ask um well, first, is there anything else that we want to that we want to touch on that you brought? Is there any any important information that you feel um, that parents should know, or something that they can do? Maybe talk to their guilt. So you've done everything mm -hmm. right as a parent. Mm -hmm. You um, get the call that something happened. Your child comes forward. Right. How do you? Because this is a big part too. That parent now has to emotionally mm -hmm. handle this guilt that mm -hmm. they now have. I'm a terrible parent. What could I have done differently? Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're going to hate it's me. It's my fault. My it's fault my now. fault. So what is the treatment that the parent can get? Because you are going to have to have some self-care. Sure. So again, uh, there are treatment options available to parents who find themselves in these situations. I absolutely recommend anyone who's been in that situation, you know, Google your local child advocacy center, mm -hmm. right? But you know, just to kind of speak to that a little bit, um, the bottom line is we have to send our kids to school, right? Yeah. We have to send our kids places. We can't be with them 24-7. And, and it's so important to realize that that grooming process is a very sophisticated process and built into it is the instilling of the fear in the child that they can't say anything. And if they say anything, terrible things will happen. And so it doesn't always speak to the quality of your relationship with your child that your child has kept this secret. Right. It doesn't always speak to the quality of your parenting. Um, and so it's really about, you know, okay, this terrible thing has happened. Holy smokes. A, what does my child need in terms of treatment, support, advocacy, right. right? What do I need in terms of those things? And what 
what is the most supportive possible response I can provide now? Right. And so it, you know, to parents who are going through this, um, it, it's just a part of that process that children are so well-groomed to not say anything. Um, and again, the individuals that perpetrate against children, um, it, it, they're skilled at blending yeah. in, at fitting in, at looking like they belong. And so it's not, it's so often not this really obvious thing, right? We sort of equate that sexual abuse is violent and it leaves bruises and it would be obvious and the child would be, um, you know, crying. Terrified. And it, right. Yeah. And it's, it's just not, mm -mm. so often that's just not how it works. Um, so it's, it's a difficult issue because it's hidden. Yeah. Brittany, thanks for coming. Seriously. It was Absolutely. great to have you on the show. We do. We do do a thing where we uh, ask our, our guest three different questions at the end of the show. Oh, boy. Yeah. So <laughs> let's start with you're a new parent. So let's. Yeah. Um, what is some advice, the best advice that you receive that you would like to pass down as a new parent going into this completely blind? Oh, wow. It, just general advice general. about parenting. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, do the best you can. And if they're alive at the end of the day, you probably did something right. <laughs> really? That's great. That is good. Um, and then the last question we'll ask you two today. So you are um, in a field where you kind of have to learn to leave it at the door when you come in. It's, it's very tough to bring this home. You see a lot of cases that are tough. Um, when you feel like your best self, what are you feeling? What do you do to kind of escape mm. um, uh, the stuff that you do to kind of bring you to a higher vibration? Yeah. So I think um, actually the answer that I found, at least since being at the Child Advocacy Center and dealing with the issues we do day in and day out is um, so often it's easy to leave work and feel like there are unresolved issues, right? Like what if that kiddo's case never gets prosecuted? Mm. What if that perpetrator leaves the state and is never apprehended, right? What if that family doesn't follow through with treatment? And so what I really try to kind of ground myself in is what can we offer to that child, to that family while they're under our roof and in our doors, that is something positive. So, so like I have stickers in my office, right? And so sometimes what I can feel good about at the end of the day when I leave is, you know what? That child smiled when I gave them a sticker, right? Like that's cool. Yep. You know, I can't undo the terrible things they've been through, but if I can give them a smile, if I can try to answer parents' questions and see them breathe that, that short sigh of relief. If a parent says to me, oh, thank you. Like I just... Oh, thank yeah. you for getting me that phone number, right? Thank you for getting me that person's name. It's like, okay, that's what we have control over right now. Yes. So I've found that really um, my self-care around the work I do is just trying to look at what impact can we have right now. Yeah. Over what you have control of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, if anyone wants to get involved, so this is for our Buffalo listeners, or even if you don't live in Buffalo, um, our website is cacbuffalo.org. If anybody wants to get involved with the CAC, um, you know, they can reach out to program director, Rebecca Stevens or Brittany Palermo, assistant program director. Mm -hmm. Um, that is a program of best self behavioral health. You can obviously reach out to us over at best self. Um, but check out the website, you know, share the information, 
Um, yeah. it's really about awareness and prevention and, and mm-hmm. treatment and healing. And yeah. And I, <laughs> I did promise our, uh, our educator and outreach person, Lori Sims, that I would do a little plug. There are numerous opportunities for people to get involved in the training aspect, the education and prevention outreach pieces. Um, there's a great campaign going on right now with enough abuse. So Google enough abuse, you know, reach out to your local CAC, mm-hmm. inquire about volunteer opportunities, you know, becoming a trainer there's there's lots of different ways to get involved awesome all right well this is this so is really important it wasn't yeah. fun but it's important, no, it's, it important. Was fun. it's it's one of those conversations like we you said have before have. you know yeah. it needs to happen uh, the the fact that it's uncomfortable to yeah. talk about is not a good enough reason to not talk about it exactly you know? so right. Brittany, thanks so much for being on the show my pleasure and that's best self podcast we will see you guys next week Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Best Self Podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the Best Self Podcast are those of the producers and guests and in no way reflect the official policy or position of Best Self Behavioral Health. Any content discussed by the co-hosts or guests are their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.